0: All right, we're live. Welcome back. This show is brought to you by the Bitbox O2, Bitcoin-only hardware wallet. If you're buying Bitcoin, that is an excellent move for your future self. But as we all know, not your keys, not your coins. The best way to own Bitcoin, in fact, the only way is to take custody of your Bitcoin, and a hardware wallet is a convenient and easy way to do that. Uh, I've been really impressed with the Bitbox and the, the set of features that they uh, deploy in the device. If you want to learn more, go to shiftcrypto.ch forward slash rapidfire for five percent off. And we're also brought to you by the Bitcoin 2021 conference, which Caitlin and I were just talking about. Caitlin's actually going to be a speaker at the conference, which is super exciting. With some other Avanti peeps, and uh, I think this is going to be such a fun time. It's going to be so great to meet everyone, to hang out, to maybe even get a little messy after the conference. Uh, you know, <laughs> formalities are taken care of. So if you're interested in learning more or going, go to B.tc and use the promo code VALIS for 15% off. Caitlin, how are you?
1: Hey there. I'm doing great. Thanks. I can't wait for that conference. I am so pumped that we're all actually going to be able to get together in person again. And most people are actually showing up in person. It's like you said, there's so much pent up energy and it's uh, it's just overdue. And
0: and a lot lot of folks I think
1: are going to have a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah,
0: a lot of people jumping through a lot of hoops to get there and return home and yep. quarantine still in various places. So I think they're going to try to maximize uh, the benefit of, of doing so. Um, Caitlin, I've been you know really excited for this conversation. You've been doing so much in this space, both publicly and behind the scenes for a long time now. I, I know we have only an hour, so we're going to have to move through a lot of territory quickly. But just for those people that aren't familiar with you, maybe a bit of background as to your uh, education career and kind of how you wound up. Uh, in this spot that you're in now?
1: Oh gosh, uh, born and raised in Wyoming, which is the Wyoming connection. Um, never never left truly, but I spent almost three decades on the East Coast between uh, going to graduate school at Harvard, got a law degree and a master's of public policy there. Um, and then went straight to Wall Street um, and spent the bulk of that three decades um working in the belly of the beast, so to speak, right in the middle of Wall Street. Um, uh, did a number basically started three new businesses on Wall Street, um, really, really got into the weeds of how the, the the plumbing, the back of the back of the bank, so to speak, really works um, in in the US. dollar financial system as well as in the securities settlement system. And I saw a lot of problems. Um, some nefarious, some not. Mostly not. Mostly just bad system design, um, and uh, and so when Bitcoin came along, I, I had also done a lot of, uh, gone down the rabbit hole of uh, after the financial crisis of figuring out what will it, what really went wrong in the financial system because it didn't. Uh, uh, I heard uh, Secretary Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner give two interviews that seemed to contradict themselves a couple weeks apart. One was. That he said yes, interest rates had been too low going into the financial crisis, and that helped create the mortgage market bubble. Um, but then he argued a couple weeks later that interest rates needed to be dropped, um, and I didn't understand how to how to how to you know square that that circle. And uh, so, it got me really digging into alternative schools of economic thought. Um, really, you know, did a lot of reading on everything in the spectrum from the MMTers. Uh, modern monetary theory, which is the, um, the craze of the day, uh, all the way to the opposite end of the spectrum, the Austrian school. And uh, through those alternative uh, economic circles, um, started reading about Bitcoin in 2012. Um, and so, like so many people, I did not um, think that it was going to amount to what it has amounted to. I thought it had the potential to, but that wasn't the default. Likely scenario back then, but but what I really understood because I was so in the weeds on on settlement risk in the traditional financial system, I understood that this was a whole new settlement system, and so that's maybe the 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 angle. Yeah, the 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 alternative economics brought me to it, but what made me really grab onto it was this is a better settlement system uh, for for exchanging financial assets than what we have now.
0: Yeah, I think you could, you know, sometimes I think of it as. One of the reasons why we've become so hyper-financialized, where is out of a desire to avoid settling, because we know there's not really anything to settle back to, or at least there's not enough to settle back to, to rep, you know, to represent what's being constructed in the higher layers. You know, so we have this massive yeah. hyper-financialized cloud that's not yeah. that there's an anxiety about settling back to anything.
1: Well, and what I discovered when I was working on a pension transaction for a very large client was we asked for settlement, in other words, for delivery of the actual asset that had to happen the next day. And this was in a those assets were in a pension funds locked down account. What do I mean by that? It was in a trust account, segregated from all the other assets of the of the custody bank. And the custody bank was prohibited from lending those securities. And guess what? When, when the pension fund gave the custody bank instructions to deliver those assets the next day, the custody bank had to admit it didn't have them because it had lent them out anyway. Um, and so that that really got me going. Like, I think that happened in 2000. Eh, that was 2012. No, it was a little later. Um, it was like 2013, probably. But anyway, long story short, um, I, you know, I keep in mind, I, I had discovered Bitcoin. Well, I learned about Bitcoin in 2013 or 2012, started buying it in 2013. So to set the table, you know, I'm working, I'm, I'm discovering all these settlement system issues. At the same time, I'm seeing Bitcoin and realizing, holy cow, this is actually a really good solution to some of those problems. But to your point, um, you know, if you ever actually have to settle, you realize uh, that that um, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith referred to it as the bezel. There's a bezel out there um, because we don't like to settle; we just like to constantly net balances against each other, and we're never actually, you know getting real delivery of the real underlying asset. Um, And on the rare occasions when you do, when there's like a merger that has to close and you have to deliver the assets on that day, or these pension transactions, you had to deliver the actual assets on that day. um, That's when you realize that the assets might not all actually be there. And I had to learn the hard way at that time because the pension fund manager was looking at the Brokerage um, account on his screen, and it, and it was showing that the assets were there, and it was just he, it was incredulous. How is it possible? These assets are not there. That they're they're on my screen. You quickly realize your 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 account balance at your at your broker dealer or your bank just tells you what the broker dealer or the bank actually owes you. It doesn't mean they have it. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that they can deliver it if you need it to be delivered.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you mentioned mo- uh, modern monetary theory. I mean, we've basically basically been operating under that philosophy for several decades now. I think the formalization of the philosophy is just trying mm. to conjure up a justification for what's going on. You know, we're looking at it and we're mm. saying, well, how can we, you know, in an environment where maybe that if you if the premise is you don't really need to settle or that we can we can continue to kick the settlement can down the road and down the road and down the road, then yeah, does any does you know you have a lot more latitude for making up a lot of these things and acting like there's no consequences to these activities.
1: Sure. Um, and yeah, I, I'm not sure that, that economics, economic theory is very, very focused on settlement per se. Um, but it, it just comes back to the, the, the bigger question of property rights. Um, do you have a property right in your, in your financial asset or, is your financial asset just an IOU, which is a contractual right? Um, and it has, it has very different implications in the law when you have an outright, you have legal title to something as opposed to when somebody just owes it to you. Very different. Um, you want outright legal title. And I like to talk about the state of Wyoming, one of the reasons, one of the questions that keeps coming up is why Wyoming? why <laughs> Of all places, why Wyoming? Well, one of the reasons is Wyoming really gets at a visceral level this whole property rights question because Wyoming fought what was a de facto civil war over this very issue. It's called the Johnson County Cattle War uh, in the 1880s uh, into, into the early 1890s. That was in Wyoming and the, and the war was fought over the fencing of the West did landowners have the right to fence out trespassers? And if they do, then they have property rights that are enforceable. And if they don't, then nobody has property rights. You can't, if you can't fence out a trespasser, what does it mean to own the land? Um, and I think that that is exactly the question that's asked re- regarding settlement. And yet, um, I-, I think, you know, a lot of these systems were set up this way out of technological necessity. Keep in mind, everything used to be done in paper. And so you literally had to move paper around. There was the great w- Wall Street paperwork crisis um, in, the, in, the, in the early 1970s. And it all the, the, um, the New York Stock Exchange closed on Wednesday afternoons just to allow the clerks to keep up with settlement. Um, you had to move the actual stock certificates around. That's why all the back then all the brokerage firms were right next to the New York Stock Exchange, and they physically moved the stock certificates around. Um, and 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 then you know then came um, we started to digitize things. Uh, and 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 you can look at it in the evolution of the law as well. You used to have direct title. Technically, you still do have direct title um, if you own your stock certificate, or certainly if you own the paper dollar bill in your wallet. You've got outright title to that. That's a that that is a. You have a property right in that. But the problem is um, that we started to move um, in the the first the first commercial law update said, okay, we want to dematerialize these. Stock certificates, so we don't want to give, we don't want people to actually have to have paper. We want to start actually just moving ledger balances, which is so much easier than moving the actual paper. And so that's how all this netting stuff started. So let's move the ledger balances. And so um, the first update to Wyoming or to the uh, to America's commercial law for securities said okay, let's, You still have a property right in your securities, but you don't have to actually have the piece of paper anymore. The property right is evidenced by the book entry on the issuers' books and records. So back then, think about it, the issuers of securities knew who exactly their shareholders were. I'll come back to that in a second. Um, and then in 1994 was what I've called the greatest theft of property rights in human history because the entire U.S. stock market switched over from being a direct property right where you had a property right as long as you were listed on the books and records, you had legal title to the shares. And instead, we went to this IOU method where it's indirect. Um, The legal title of securities belongs with the depository trust company. And you are two or three levels down in your broker-dealer away from where that legal title is. And at each of those levels is an IOU. So what you own is an IOU, you no longer have a direct property right in your securities. And that is when things started to go haywire in Wall Street systems. And that's how you end up with like the GameStops of the world. Um, So these market structure decisions were done because of technological limitations of moving from paper, you know, from analog to digital. Well, we're moving from analog to digital, to web 3.0. Now we don't need, we're not talking about just a PDF copy of of things. We're not talking about just an Excel spreadsheet ledger balance moving. We're actually talking about, you can have a direct ownership in the actual asset again. And so we're, we're coming back full circle to where we started, which is where we should end up, which is that people should have property rights in these assets. And, um, and that's really, it, it, it's, again, it's all about settlement. Uh, it's that, that's, what, that's where we're headed, that, that you, can, you, can, you know that when you transact in these assets, you actually have settled the transaction and it's not, you're not waiting for layers of intermediaries whose, whose systems don't update simultaneously, which is how you end up with the GameStop type situations. And to your point, until you actually settle something, you don't really know that it's there.
0: Right. Yeah. And, you know, this, of course, is what's so radical about Bitcoin. You know, it's almost like the archetypal form of a property right. Because you could say, you know, yes, you you can fence your land and you can have the state enforce that. But if you yourself can't enforce a property right, you're dependent on others to enforce it. Right. So it's it's almost yeah. like you can't really own anything in the physical realm because someone with greater force can basically take it to you. Whereas Bitcoin, obviously, you can own it, you can verify it, you can, you You don't memorize your seed. Exactly. (laughs) So I mean, we're really talking about such a, you know, collision of of different entities, really, you know, we have this hyper financialized system that Mm -hmm. is afraid to settle. And we have this thing that if you, you know, if you Mm -hmm. use it to its maximum effect, it's pure settlement, it's pure property, right? And seeing those two worlds collide, and we'll get into this in a second with what you're doing, but seeing those two worlds collide, I mean it's such an interesting time to see the pressure that each is exerting on the other and to see the you know to see the the flow of capital from one into another i mean it, it's it's tremendous. Um, yeah, I, I do want to ask you though, you know a lot of times people's Bitcoin origin story. It's almost like all the different experiences in your prior life that kind of led you to seeing what Bitcoin was when you encountered it, yes. even, if it even if it required yes. a few touch points. You know, you come from Wyoming where you have this legacy <laughs> of, of independence, of individualism, of property rights, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you come from a financial background. You, you come from a legal education. Like, were you leaning toward that sort of philosophy of you know, uh, libertarianism, let's say, or individualism or or that kind of stuff prior to getting into Bitcoin? Or was it purely your investigation of the 08 financial crisis that kind of allowed you to see the importance of those things?
1: Yeah, it was the latter. Keep in mind, I actually have a degree from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, right? So that kind of tells you a little bit of uh, a little bit of the background, right? Um, uh, but let's put it this way: I don't think there are any libertarians who have uh, degrees from the Kennedy School of Government. Probably not, many. but uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the financial crisis was really what 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 did it for me, um, and I, I just got very very curious and um, started reading. It was a client of mine, um, a very successful hedge fund client. Um, who, who I remember I was sitting on the Morgan Stanley trading floor in the height of the financial crisis. And everybody was just talking to people, trying to figure out what the heck was going on. And I remember, you know, he said, you got to start reading, just start reading. I, I, well, the question I asked him was, I got to learn how the Fed works. I got to, I got to really understand the mechanics and the plumbing of the Fed. Cause I, you know, it's so funny. You're in the middle of, of, I worked on the trading floor at Morgan Stanley and you, know, you, you would think that you would know all those details, but what happens in the financial system is that people get very narrow and very deep in their expertise. And there is not a lot of breadth. Um, there are not a lot of people who have moved around and that's another, I, you know, I'm some, somebody who's just a naturally curious person and gets bored pretty easily. So, um, so that's I had a very nontraditional path on Wall Street, um, started in investment banking, then did equity research and then started these three new businesses. And in 22 years to do five different jobs on, at Wall Street firms is, is just unheard of. Um, so I had a very non-traditional path because I just am bored um, and curious. And uh, anyway, so um, I, I had never the, the point of this is I had never actually really understood how the plumbing worked. I was 16 years on Wall Street before I started to get really curious about the plumbing because the plumbing was always somebody else's job. Right. Um, and, you know, as long as the money moved, you didn't have to go in and try to figure out what went wrong. But once I actually then got curious about the plumbing and then started to, I mean, I, actually it was it was that deep dive I did on on the alternative schools of economic thought in that 2008 to, uh, to 10 period that really got me, it, it helped me figure out this business idea for how we were going to, transfer pension obligations out of, the, out of pension funds and into life insurance companies um, and actually make everyone better off by doing so. And that's, that, that, that turned into a whole new business. But it, that was the business that I was, that I was talking about where I discovered all the, all the settlement problems. Um, without going too much into the weeds, uh, I, I think I can make this digestible for your listeners. Um, back then, stocks traded, uh, settled three days after the trade date or so-called T plus three settlement. Um, And so what happened to to try to move pension fund obligations out of the regulatory regime called ERISA um, into the life insurance company's regulatory regime, which is governed by something called NAIC, we had to figure out, I mean, at bottom, the, 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 the observation was really simple. These are all annuity obligations, you just call it a pension fund when it's in a pension plan but, uh, and you call it an annuity when it's in a life insurance company, but it's really the same thing. It's just an obligation to pay cash flows to the obligor for as long as the person's alive. It's the same, it's the same economic risk. Okay, so the regulatory requirements, though, were very different um, and the assets backing those obligations w- were very different based upon whether they were inside a pension fund or whether they're inside a life insurance company. So what we had to do was figure out how the corporation could settle the pension obligations fairly um, by buying annuities for the pensioners and overfunding the pension fund. So you're going from a very underfunded pension fund in the pension world to an overfunded um, annuity in the life insurance world because uh, life insurance companies are required to hold dollar-for-dollar assets against their obligations and to hold capital on top of that, right? Um, And they have very, very specific Um, regulatory guidelines on what the type of assets they can invest in. So now let's come back to, all right, we're moving securities that trade that settle three days after the trade date, but under the pension rules, we only, we had to do everything same day. So how do you put, how do you square that circle? How how do you take something that settles three days later and make it settle same day? That was a very basic question. And, um, stuff, figured out how to do that. We actually spend months practicing for the closing date of these transactions, because what happened is if even a single asset had not made it from the pension fund to the insurance company, then the whole transaction would have failed on both sides because the pension fund would have been out of compliance with its rules. And a, an insurance company by law cannot write a contract unless it's fully funded up front on day one. So if some of the assets we were transferring didn't make it over. The whole the, the life insurance that the the, the, um, the annuity contract would have been invalid and all the assets would have had to have come back same day. What a mess! And you're talking about 29 billion dollars worth of assets. So that just gives you a little bit more color. I haven't talked about this in a podcast in the depth that I just did, but it gives you a little bit more color of, of the problems we were trying to solve. And and again, hopefully, it gives you some context for the deeper I got in these weeds of. How do you do that? Boy, Bitcoin looked pretty darn good. And well, and I understood, you know, this thing was gonna have a big impact eventually if, if it took off. But back then, I gotta say, I wasn't I didn't talk about Bitcoin very much. Um, I unless I was at meetups or conferences, which I did after hours and on the weekends, I didn't pop my head up at Morgan Stanley um right away and say, Hey, I'm interested in Bitcoin because. Uh, when Jamie Dimon um, a, a few years ago said he would fire anyone who was involved with Bitcoin, I had that se- I had that feeling, and most of us Wall Streeters who were into Bitcoin in those early years had that same feeling too. Um, I was looking at some pictures the other day. I was at the send off dinner for Charlie Shrem the night before he went off to jail to serve his um, his his term for the unregistered un- um, securities offering. That was I think 2013, maybe. Anyway, um, and I was Anyway, keeping my head down (laughs) because I didn't want to be in any pictures uh, because I was at Morgan Stanley at the time and and figured I might get fired for being involved with Bitcoin.
0: Well, it was probably more rare at the time. And certainly the stigma was worse at that time. But, you know, I like to think of it all of all these sound money sleeper cell sleeper cell sound money advocates all over the world, just, you know, operating within the machine and waiting for their moment to either, you know, jump ship or, you know, you know, foster some change from within, But, you know, as you're saying all this, I just think, my God, the inefficiencies that exist in the system now, (laughs) the reliance on trust, the role and the impediment, you know, and I know you could make a case. There's obviously a case to be made for some benefit from them, but just the the influence of the regulators, how much they shape and structure what happens and whether good or bad, how Mm -hmm. much that slows down and how much that impedes the efficiency of what actually takes place. I mean, and then, of course, we think of a system like Bitcoin and we think, oh, my God, this is the complete opposite. You know, this is an open network where nobody yeah. can really impose that kind of stuff. And how much more efficient, fast, cater to customer demands, all that kind of stuff it's going to be. Yes, it's more, uh, you know, sink or swim. Right. Like it, it, you don't right. have built in protections in a system like that. But I think a lot of us would say. Well, that's good, and then it, it it implies that you have to take more responsibility as an investor, as a consumer, as right. a fiduciary, as somebody in a space, right?
1: Well, yeah, and 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 I someone approached me about um, speaking out about a lawsuit. I'll keep the details um, confidential, but it's a lawsuit of somebody who lost money in um, in a coin lending um, situation, sued the coin lender, and lost at the at the Trial court and is trying to appeal and wants me to get involved and and um, and, and I, as I was reading through the materials that they sent me, I'm always interested in the legal um, legal side of this industry because uh, one of the things to your point is a lot of people just generally have just been caveat emptor. If I lose money in this, it's my own fa- my own fault. I know there's a lot of risk, um, but what's starting to happen is you're starting to see people who really aren't thinking of the world that way. And there's a lot more money involved now. And so you are starting to see litigation. This is one of the things that Trace Mayer uh, rightfully observed. He's, he was thinking, you know, four or five steps ahead of everybody else. What are going to be the attack vectors on Bitcoin as the price goes up a lot? Um, they're going to be very different than the attack vectors today. And one of the attack vectors is lawyers. And so how do we, how do we make sure that um, that lawsuits don't come in and start screwing up the. But nobody will ever screw up with Bitcoin, the base layer protocol. Nobody will ever screw, screw up that. But where, the, where things are going to start to have an impact is in these intermediaries, right? This person was suing a coin lending company. Um, you know, there's been litigation. I'm thinking to, about the Coinbase litigation over uh, Bitcoin Cash. What 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 was Coinbase's obligation to customers for forks and airdrops? Um, And is it fair that they say those forks and airdrops are not um, don't belong to the customer? How do you how do you how do you sort that out, right? And so that's one of the things that we did in Wyoming with the digital asset custody rules. We got together with uh, with several CTOs in the industry and a consumer advocate. And, and hashed it out. And there were real arguments over what is the appropriate, what is fair, what's the appropriate way to handle this? Um, and I kept saying, guys, it's not, it's not appropriate that the intermediary gets to own all those fork and airdrop proceeds and pocket them. <laughs> if, the, if the intermediary claims the forks and airdrops, then that belongs to the customer. Um, but you don't want to spam the intermediary either. So you have to make sure that that the intermediary has the ability to say, no, we're not claiming that fork and airdrop, that, that was not secure. We're not risking um, exposing the private keys to which they're, they're connected because the private keys are securing the real stuff. Um, and, uh, and so we're not claiming those forks and airdrops. But so the, 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 the right conclusion is, and, and we split the, the, the hairs pretty, pretty clearly in, in Wyoming on what all this means. Do you actually, if, you, if, if you're going to, um, if you, well, first of all, the, the, the basic conclusion is in Wyoming, if an intermediary claims a fork and airdrop, it belongs to the customer period. Um, but um, the, and of course they're not forced into it. They, they can choose not to claim it. And if they don't claim it, they don't have to be forced by their customer to claim it which is what the litigation in the, in the Coinbase um, situation was. Somebody wanted Coinbase to go get the Bcash before Coinbase's engineers had determined that it was sufficiently safe to do so, um, and so was it were they obligated to go claim that B cash fork for that day, um, right? And so um, uh, I can come back and talk a little bit more about how Wyoming split some of these hairs in a very fair way. But the bigger point is, we're seeing litigation now, mm-hmm. and this is um, one of the things that I, as I was looking through this this lawsuit draft was, oh my gosh, um, the judges have no idea how to adjudicate these disputes. The, the big dispute is what is Bitcoin? What law applies? In, in, and it was. And then the next dispute is whose state law applies? In that case, it was a dispute between California and Delaware. And I was shaking my head, thinking, "God, if if the, if the intermediary had been in Wyoming, there, you know, these issues just wouldn't be there because the judges have an, a clear roadmap to adjudicate the disputes in a way that respects how the Bitcoin protocol actually works." And so. Um, and and that's the risk is that you get these judges who don't understand Bitcoin, um, and 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 so weird outcomes are gonna are gonna, going to have an impact. And, and um, the Bitcoin case in front of him in, in his courtroom in Wyoming, and um, it had to do with somebody, um, um, you know, I, I don't know if it was a divorce or something, but the, but but um, delivering the Bitcoin as part of a settlement, and the um, and the and the the person involved. Convinced the judge that Bitcoin could not be converted into US dollars. And um, one of the professors who was involved in this quickly jumped in and said, You were lied to. <laughs> so, um, anyway, long story short, like this is the, the in the courts right now is the Wild West, and we're going to get with some really crazy. Um, judgments coming out of, of lawsuits. Um, yeah. And all this is going to get settled over the next few years. But right now, we got to be careful about all of it. And that's indeed one of the things that we're trying to do in Wyoming is get ahead of all this right. so that Bitcoiners don't end up on the short end of the stick.
0: I think that's a great point. I, I lost you for you know 15 seconds there, but I I, I get the, the, the primary point you're saying. And I'm wondering... You know, because we have, there's the hardcore Bitcoiners that are not your keys, not your coins, anonymize your mm-hmm. coins, you know, the whole nine yards. And then you've got, let's say, exposure Bitcoin. And this is the white label. This is the ETFs. This is the legacy markets yeah. and participants and investors coming in using custodians, using products and getting expo- exposure to Bitcoin price action. And, you know, what I take from what you're saying is that the, it's important to try to make the requisite changes in the legal framework to respect the very novel characteristics that Bitcoin represents and try to Bingo. move them over to the framework that everyone's used to operating within. And that's yep. awesome. And I think that's good because it permits a better way for the legacy people to interact with the, the attributes of, of this thing. Are, yep. they not, are they not at the same time fundamentally... Opposed? Like, do you think, will, could you? Yeah, I mean, what do you think is the tension between the two, and how do you think that will, will be carried yeah. out?
1: Well, I mean, if you want to um, have fiat currency on and off ramps into digital assets, which I obviously happen to think is important. Um, and that's because somebody, you've got to be able to get into the digital asset system. I, I recognize that more people are coming in than are going out. But there are a lot of people who are trading and that's creating liquidity and that's good. And they're going back and forth between Bitcoin and dollars all the time. Mm. That's good. So how do you actually, are are, are those two things fundamentally incompatible? No, but you've got to be careful how you build the bridges because the assets themselves are fundamentally incompatible in their settlement characteristics. Again, we're coming back to settlement. Um, Bitcoin settles in 10 minutes. I mean, instantly when you see the Bitcoin, it arrives, it arrives, but it's not considered settlement until you get that first confirmation. And some would argue not until you get the sixth confirmation, but it settles in minutes on the blockchain with transparency. And here's the other key. It settles with irreversibility. US dollars don't settle with irreversibility um, and they don't settle in minutes. Okay. So it's, it's, it's the speed of settlement and it's the finality of settlement that are very different between Bitcoin and the U.S. dollar. This is where I'm hyper-focused. How do you how do you do how do you make sure that Bitcoin itself is not causing systemic risk within the U.S. dollar payment system, and um, and how do you make sure that intermediaries don't get caught up in this very issue? By the way, this is the reason why most of the Bitcoin exchanges will not allow you to take your Bitcoin off the platform for typically 10 to 14 days after you buy it. Because if you send it a dollar to buy Bitcoin at you know, Coinbase, for example, um, and you send that dollar through ACH and then Coinbase sells you the fraction of a Bitcoin, and then you turn around and go to your bank and, it, and say, I didn't send that ACH payment, the bank is gonna have to reverse it. Right. So now all of a sudden, if Coinbase has allowed you to take the Bitcoin off the platform and you reverse your ACH payment, Guess what, Coinbase is the one out both sides of that trade. Okay, Mm -hmm. that's a huge risk issue. Again, it's all about settlement. Um, That's a huge risk issue. And so um, this is the reason why for the most part for consumers, um, um, you you can't take your, your coins off platform for typically a couple of weeks because most of the reversals and the fraud Um, is is discovered in those first few days. Um, And that's the way the consumer laws work under the ACH system um, uh, and the ACH, um, it's called automated clearing house, is actually proposing to extend the period for fraud to two years. So if there's fraud, then the consumer can report it to the bank and the payment can be, the ACH payment can be reversed up to two years later. How do you square that circle where Bitcoin settles in minutes with irreversibility and your dollar might not actually settle with finality for two years?
0: See, this is this is in my hyper Bitcoin bull mind and perhaps longer term projection. This is the outcome or this is the process of the immutable qualities of Bitcoin reshaping everything downstream of it. So like this is very, very early days. Right. All we're trying to do effectively now (laughs) is is try to get bitcoin to fit into this or at least that's the narrative right but i yeah. actually think so what hap- what's happening and what's going to happen is bitcoin is going to is going to impose its structure its immutable characteristics yeah. on our existing legal framework and mm-hmm. you know obviously this is going to take some time but it's going to you know distill it down to an entity that maximally optimizes the qualities that bitcoin has with whatever relationship of governance we deem yep. is necessary to add on to that
1: that's right and so what there are four characteristics of that entity that that should that that can safely plug bitcoin into the us dollar financial system number 1 very importantly it's not leveraged leverage and bitcoin do not mix we can come back and talk about that in a minute but i can't underscore that enough leverage and bitcoin do not mix number 2 the entity holds 100% cash for the assets backing the customer deposit liabilities. If, if it's a bank, for example, where, the, where they're accepting US dollar for payment, um, and then Bitcoin is, is provided as a trust department service for custody, those two things, is on, the deposits are on balance sheet, the Bitcoin's off balance sheet, okay? So that bank should not be leveraged and, and it should hold just cash on its balance sheet. Very simple balance sheet, left-hand side, cash, right-hand side customer deposits and common equity. Very simple. Um, uh, the, 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 um, the next piece is that trades should be pre-funded. It's what you're talking about. Um, you should not allow this settlement risk to, um, to, to, to pile up because you can end up with indirect leverage exposures as a result of that. Um, and now I'm blanking on what the fourth one was. Actually, hang on. I actually have some notes here. <laughs> I'm just having a brain fart um, <laughs> on what that is. Sorry. Oh, ring fenced is the other one. Um, I, I, I was very public and um, critical of State Street when, I, when it came out about a month ago that State Street is providing bilateral credit lines to its institutional trading customers to trade Bitcoin as if it were any other currency. Because that is not ring-fenced for what is one of the most systemically important institutions in the world. And all of a sudden, to your point, you know, uh, um, if, if, the, if their systems are not updating every minute and they're only updating overnight, you could see a systemically important bank very um, um, innocently end up with a leverage exposure in Bitcoin and not even know it. Again, so those four things don't leverage it don't hold anything but cash in the fiat side of the institution, ring fence it, and then make sure all the trades are pre-funded or at least simultaneously settled between Bitcoin and dollars. That's how you do it. By the way, I just described to you the philosophy behind the Wyoming SPDI charter. <laughs> That's exactly what, how Wyoming built the, the SPDI charter. We did not want any in, indirect leakage of settlement risk to come into the US dollar payment system precisely because Bitcoin can cause problems if you, if you treat it like it's just any other financial asset. And it does look unfortunately like some of the big banks are looking at it that way. And I cannot warn financial regulators loud enough, don't look at it that way. Traditional VAR models, value at risk models don't apply. There is no clearinghouse. There is no lender of last resort who can paper over a temporary settlement failure in Bitcoin. And, um, you know, a lot of people would say that's a feature, not a bug. I just say it is. It's just the way it works. The real, the real clearinghouses in Bitcoin, in the event there's ever a problem at one of the big intermediaries, are the whales. That's it. And the reason is that 75 to 80% of coins are owned by individuals and, and not held at custodians. And I just saw an interesting article within the last week. That during bull markets, there's a big withdrawal of coins off custody platforms. And we're now down to about 12% of the Bitcoins outstanding are on custody platforms. And the rest are held by individuals off intermediary, self-custody. So there's going to be a perpetual shortage of collateral. So if you want to think about applying the Wall Street trading approach to Bitcoin, You're never going to be able to find collateral if you let these these exposures get too big. And if you're not hyper careful to lock down all of the risk and um, and that's 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 the the responsible way to do it. Most of the intermediaries in Bitcoin operate that way already. But I'm sure a lot of you are listening, going, hmm, maybe some of my intermediaries don't. Be careful. This is why the not your keys, not your coins matters a lot. And 75 to 80% of, uh, of Bitcoin is heeding that warning. Now it looks like it's closer to 88% um, heeding that warning and, and have pulled coins off intermediaries. Um, and that's the right way to do it. You want to be the legal owner of your Bitcoin, not your keys, not your coins.
0: Yeah and I think that's you know exactly the point I was making before is that at the moment it might seem that bitcoin is imposing a form of discipline on the on the operations of of typical pra- standard practices let's say and I think that's the drip the imposing of the discipline and then it you know almost in an attempt to control it you have to make yourself flexible enough to accommodate its unique attributes and how it actually works mm-hmm. and if you do that for long enough you kind of become it you become a you know, something similar to it, right? And trying to accommodate it. Um, Yeah.
1: You know, it's interesting. A friend of mine, um, one of my mentors, uh, reached out to me when Square first invested 2% of corporate cash into Bitcoin. And he said... Bitcoin's going to hack big tech. B- big tech thinks that they're going to get control of Bitcoin, but Bitcoin's going to hack big, big tech. And he's Bitcoin's right. And that's the everything. exact same point <laughs> that you're just making. Um, you know, they, 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 they want to be the centralized control. They want to be able to censor. Um, and they, they want all of our data. They want, no, they want us to have no privacy whatsoever. Um, and they just want to sell stuff to us. But um, in fact, actually, Bitcoin's going to hack them. They will never control
0: it. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Um, before, I want to talk about Wyoming, uh, Wyoming rather, and Avanti, but you mentioned leverage, rehypothecation, lending. Mm-hmm. It's an aspect of all this that's growing more, more institutions and places are offering these services. Why is it you think that's a bad idea or it's a dangerous idea? Can you elaborate on that?
1: Well, hypothecation is fine. It's rehypothecation that's not. Okay, so um, so so borrowing against your Bitcoin, a lot of people are going to do that in order to avoid having to pay capital gains taxes, or just defer. Rather, is the is the better way to say that you can get some liquidity for your asset by borrowing against it. And therefore you don't have to sell your Bitcoin and pay taxes on it. Um, and so, so that is a strategy I'm aware a lot of, a lot of people are using. That's a legitimate strategy. As long as you, as long as you never go a hundred, go above a hundred percent of the value. Can I ask you, um, can one I of stop the, you
0: for one second yeah. and just ask you a question when you do that, and let's say you do it in the, in the best possible instantiation, which would be you hold a key and then you're the lender holds a key and then someone else holds a key or something like that. Yeah, you're never going to get them to
1: agree to that.
0: Yeah, well, aren't we just (laughs) back to who has the the, the property right to it again?
1: Absolutely. Yes, this is why I'm not recommending this, to be clear. I don't do this myself. I know a lot of, of, I have a lot of friends who do. And it's because they're more focused on, you know, deferring taxes and don't want to have to sell their Bitcoin, but want some liquidity against that asset. That's the same thing as margin accounts for stocks. It's a legitimate strategy, but it's not one I recommend.
0: Um, because it's back to the old way of doing things. Right. Yeah. And
1: I also I also like um, the way Andreas puts it. Um, yeah. Maybe if you if you um, put if you deposit your Bitcoin into a lending firm. Yeah. Maybe you'll you'll get 6% interest. But it's 6% interest today. 90% losses tomorrow. And you'll never get those Bitcoins back. Right. If the intermediary goes bust. There, it, it didn't make much uh, news, but the cred bankruptcy should have been a shot across the bow to a lot of players in this industry. Cred, um, it, ha- it came out, was running fractional for months before they finally hit the wall. And um, they were playing with your Bitcoins behind, behind the, the scenes. And there was, there's, I, I, one of the things I've also said is there's no counterparty credit risk disclosure, not even in the OTC markets, um, there's still just a lot of trust. People are, are um, you know, because there haven't been defaults in the OTC markets yet, um, people are assuming that there won't be. Trust me, there will be. It's something called Herstadt risk. Herstadt was the German bank um, in a foreign exchange transaction that went down and caused a ripple uh, um, effect, domino effect in the um, in foreign exchange markets. That's going to happen again in Bitcoin. And, and I say good riddance when it does happen. As as Warren Buffett likes to say, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. Well, the tide's still coming in right now. We're in a bull market, um, mm-hmm. and credit failed in a bull market. That should tell you something. But one of the things that I think um, you should watch is is it, you know when you when you when you roll the dice with intermediaries like this and try to get yield on an asset that's not supposed to be delivering yield, you don't know if that six percent is remotely compensating you for the counterparty credit risk or not sure, it looks much better than what you get on your dollars that you're deposited at your bank right now. But as Andreas says so well, up 6% today, down 90% tomorrow. Um, And you don't know that you're not in that category. So just, you know, beware, be very, very, very careful.
0: And the same is true for, you know, these lending services, right? You post Bitcoin collateral and you get cash, but what you've done is you've swapped a primary claim on your Bitcoin for a primary claim on the cash in the hopes that that intermediary will grant you back we'll that be claim at some point in the future. And we'll
1: deliver it back to you. Yeah. Right. Well, and you, one of the, one of the surefire signs that financial intermediaries are getting into trouble is if they keep raising capital. I'll leave you with that
0: thought. <laughs> sneaky, sneaky. I know what you're saying, but um so, okay, so we got eight minutes left. I know you have a hard stop. This is my last uh, two questions. Um, it's been, I'm, and I love your commentary. I've, I've heard you speak on a lot of different podcasts on the broader macro landscape, what's going on, how it fits in the historical context, all that kind of stuff. But that will probably have to wait for another time. But I'll just, I'll just use that to say that this is causing a lot of people around the states, around the world, to look for places that prioritize individual liberty, broadly speaking, uh, because that's been imposed and infringed upon in many places uh, around the world today. And Wyoming is amongst the small group of, for lack of a better term, red states that seems to at least in relation to a lot of these other jurisdictions, prioritize those ideals. And so I think Mm -hmm. there's, you know, Texas and Florida are the two ones that get mentioned the most, but there's a lot of people coming to these jurisdictions for those reasons. And then you layer Mm -hmm. on top of that, the very forward, you know, thinking regulations around bitcoin that I know you've been instrumental in and it, it starts to become a very, you know, attractive place for a lot of people if they're looking at getting out of places that you know have a lot more overbearing regulations, let's say of various kinds mm-hmm. and government involvement in people's lives to a place like Wyoming. So, first question is what's going on in Wyoming these days? You know, <laughs> is there a big influx of, of people and why should people look at Wyoming as a place to relocate? And then Use up the whatever time remains to tell me about, uh, I know you had a big raise at Avanti uh, a couple months ago, I think 37 million, if I'm not yep. mistaken. Uh, yep. What What's kind of, what's focus one for you guys at Avanti and what's going on? I know it's sure. a big question, well, so take it, yeah, you know, use big, up big the time that yeah. you have.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'll start, I'll start with what's going on in Wyoming. We've now, um, in our fourth legislative session, which just concluded a couple of weeks ago, uh, we're now up to 24 blockchain laws in four legislative sessions that have been enacted by the state of Wyoming. Um, this this year, the big one was, uh, was recognizing DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations. A lot of the Bitcoiners are like, wait a minute, that's an Ethereum thing. Not really. Um, there can be, there can be Bitcoin versions of that too. Um, um, we have smart contracts through some of the uh, um, layer two technologies. Uh, like Liquid, um, for example. So uh, absolutely, those laws are potentially benefit beneficial to Bitcoin. Um, and what that is, is a limited liability company. It, um, so in other words, you, you, you lock down the risk that you become a, a, what's called a general partner that's jointly and severally liable with everyone else in the project. Now you get some limited liability, just like a corporation or a, or a limited liability company would get. Um, and, those, um, and, and, and And that's an important risk factor that everybody should be locking down. Um, So, but by the way, I must say um, that bill caused people's imaginations to just go crazy. Um, The crush of people that contacted me. On that transaction was in, or on that announcement was insane. I'm getting absolutely crushed. I apologize. A lot of you are contacting me and I don't even, I can't even respond. I'm so sorry. Um, but I'm, I'm getting about 50 requests for my time every day. Um, and uh, I'm very, very focused on Avanti. So I'm just prioritizing um, all the Avanti specific stuff. And we're very internally focused uh, preparing for, for launch. But um, to answer your question, have a lot of people moved to Wyoming? Yeah, but even more people domiciled their businesses here, and Wyoming's fine with that. This was definitely about bringing jobs to Wyoming, but it's also about um, getting the fees from companies domiciling here. Um, and uh, boy, there's been a huge crush of of people domiciling their businesses in Wyoming. And this Dow thing is definitely going to be a big deal. Um, so, so you don't have to move here to get the benefits. Um, and if you decide that you do want to deal with an intermediary, um, and, uh, and there are certain groups who have to, Uh, I'm not recommending it, um, but there are certain groups who have to deal with an intermediary, namely an investment manager. By law, the asset manager has to segregate custody of the assets from the management of the assets. And so if you are required to find a custodian, why wouldn't you use a Wyoming custodian for your Bitcoin? Um, That's going to be the question I think a lot of people are going to start asking once the Wyoming Bitcoin custody banks are up and running. Um, Now that's coming later this year. It's definitely definitely coming. uh, Both Kraken and Avanti are already approved. There was a third Company that went through its banking board charter hearing yesterday. There's a fourth one. Uh, I understand that the hearing is going to be in June. Um, none of us are through the Federal Reserve yet, which is um, so. So this is the reason why we're not open yet. Lots of folks are are asking when are you open? Um, and by the way, in, in Avanti's case, we're only doing business with business customers, especially at first. The compliance requirements are just so much higher to deal with consumers. Kraken, of course, is is dealing with consumers. So between Kraken and Avanti, we should be able to to cover cover the gamut. Um, In terms of Avanti, we have not announced a um, uh, a date for opening yet. We're still working through things with the Federal Reserve and we're getting all of our ducks in a row. Uh, One other thing about being a bank uh, that has access to the payment system is, oh my, are the compliance requirements high? Um, You can't just build your own system. Um, You have to go through um, very, 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 very detailed regulatory compliance and IT requirements in order to Be bestowed the benefit of of getting access to the US dollar payment system. It is a privilege. It is a very high bar. And and, oh boy, is it a lot of work. It's more work than even I anticipated. And I knew it was going to be a lot of work going in. Um, So uh, Brian Bishop is a Bitcoin Core developer. He's our CTO. He will also be in Miami, by the way, um, as as well as Daniel O'Donnell, our um, head of business development. So there'll be three of us uh, at the Miami conference, and we hope to see you there.
0: Well, Caitlin, we'll have to do a part two sometime because I got a ton more stuff for you about all the stuff we talked about and more, but I know you're super busy. I know you've got a lot on your plate. You've been working really hard at this. So congratulations for the success that you guys have been met with so far, and I'm sure it'll continue. I really look forward to uh, hooking up at the conference. Um, Any last words before I let you get back to your day?
1: Model on. This is fun. Bull bull markets (laughs) are fun, um, but just remember, you're a real Bitcoiner if you agree with the with the following, this is not about price. This this is this is about so much more than that. Uh, and uh, I love how Jake Chernivsky put it: um, we we get more sleep during bear markets. That's when the real work gets done because things get crazy during the bull markets, and we're we're in the crazy phase right now. Uh, but uh, it's it's fun if if you pay attention to such things. Um, enjoy it. It's certainly fun to see uh, number go up.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be a very interesting rest of the rest of the year. So uh, we shall see. Anyways, Caitlin, thanks so much. Take care. And we'll see you soon down in Miami.
1: Yep, indeed. Take care.